We now return you to episode 236 of No Challenges Remaining, already in progress. Let's switch now from someone who's only 16 to someone who is 77 years old currently. Uh, Margaret Court (laughs) is back in the Australian news uh, in the last few weeks. (sighs) That was a very audible side that I appreciate. It's a punctuation. It's a comma for this story. I'm just breathing. Margaret Court was, was in Australian news. Um, it's not sure who I'm not, I'm not I never know with Australia who contacts who for these stories, but Margaret Court was there saying that she expected and felt like she deserved and was um, deserved. I think it's a good word for her. The 50th anniversary of her winning the calendar Grand Slam in 1970 is coming up. Um, and after Rod Laver got a bunch of you know commemorations at I think maybe all four Grand Slams or at least at U.S. Open and. Australian Open, at the very least, acknowledgments of him winning the calendar grand slam in 1969, that she expected similar treatment for herself in ni- in 2020, uh, when she gets her 50th anniversary. Um, she, this what makes this sort of like deliciously awkward, is that Tennis Australia has been doing everything to sort of ignore its already current and ongoing acknowledgement of Margaret Court, which is the name of Margaret Court Arena, which as we've discussed many times on the show and had Mary Carrillo on the show a couple Januarys ago talking about it's been a source of big controversy because Margaret Court in her retirement has been an increasing, has been a solidly uh, outspoken and virulent and caustic voice of uh, homophobia and transphobia, certainly and other, you know, non uh, pleasant ideologies and points of view and some of this in a very aggressive way and a lot of people don't think that her name is connotes now a meaning or a message that deserves celebration in the continuing form of a name on an arena um and so margaret knows this margaret's you know has argued against those claims counterclaims for a while which now include you know peers of hers from her era like martina navratilova and billy jean king have both said they want the name taken off the arena anyway now margaret court for 2020 is saying that she wants to be celebrated and get some sort of on-court way feted for her 2020 anniversary, 50th anniversary, and that it would be horrible if she doesn't guess this. There have been takes on all sides of the Australian uh, media and stuff like that. <laughs> My favorite reaction was from Jonathan Newman of friend of the show, show, Body Serve, <laughs> who was saying on Twitter that he was hoping that Margaret Court would get refused this and indignantly demand that her name be taken off the arena because Australian Open no longer deserves her name. And that would be what she could pull the plug on herself on her own. Um, I don't think that'll happen. But yeah, Courtney, it sets up a very interesting sort of showdown because I really don't think this time, because in, in 2018, these things flared up most significantly recently. The Australian Open found a sort of, I will say not, a, not especially brave, but they found a, a middle road of saying like we, you know, honor Margaret the player, but not her, you know, we don't agree with her current thoughts now and thought that, you know, may talk about how it'd be complicated to change the name of the arena. And I think just really sort of shirked responsibility for it in this way that I didn't totally agree with. I think they should have had more accountability than that. But anyway, they got away with it then in 2018. The way that Margaret's forcing the issue, I don't know that they can get away with it that same way in 2020. So I'm curious, I, what, how do you think this will play out? What do you think, uh, 
is going to happen here. And if anything, to, as this uh, deadline for <laughs> Margaret's 50th coming up, <laughs> it's like dreaded, like I'm trying to think of what kind of occasion, like it's like it's a like, dreaded no, birthday party. Not if, a round number. No one wants, <laughs> no one wants to come. Why yeah, can't what, it just what, be 53? Yeah. I mean, I, I do not envy tennis Australia who I genuinely do believe and uh, I have to emphasize that. I do think this, that they're they're trying to do right by everyone. I think that, that TA absolutely understands that and, and does kind of embody this um, ideal of like this progressive Australia of wanting to, to be, you know, uh, I don't know what the language is going to be. So I'll probably be really clunky with it. And I apologize in advance. Yes. Inclusive. Thank you for saving me before I, (laughs) yeah, but, uh, but inclusive (laughs) and progressive and, you know, and, and wanting to embrace it's very diverse, like, you know, uh, constituency. I I don't, in Melbourne, exactly, exactly. Even more so in Melbourne. Um, While also at the same time, trying to balance that against, this idea that Australians very much have, because I see it all the time on my timeline. I see it from male, uh, from Australian commentators, from Australian writers of like, you know, what she thinks has nothing to do with her athletic accomplishments, which like are unbelievable, put Australia in the map, Australian sporting legend, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, okay, true. Um, the only problem is, is that like, that's just not, those aren't the rules of the game anymore. And I think that we all kind of know that. And it would be one thing if, you know, and people can go back and they can do all of their own independent research on the Internet, um, just of, of of what Margaret has said in the past. And um, I was listening to the Body Serve Boys um, men. I'm sorry. I don't want to be belittling. Uh, but the Body Serve men on their potty. Boys can... affectionately. You know, I like do, WCA but you know what? The girls. I bad. say things affectionately and people get mad. So so the gentlemen over at the Body Serve um, who <laughs> live in our great serve. neighbors of the north in Canada. Um, I'm eye rolling through all of that. <laughs> but they were saying, you know, like, I don't want, they, they were like talking about the Margaret Court stuff and they're like, we don't want to give, we don't want to repeat what she said, you know? But you go back and and yeah, like, you know, all the way back in the day of like her her not necessarily anti-apartheid stance. There was that whole section of things. Um, and, you know, not exactly, you know, pro-feminism. And then even just a few years ago, you know, in, in, in terms of just knowing that she kind of openly went after and published a letter basically I mean, denouncing. what is the link? Yeah, denouncing. Is that even the word that I use here? Does that sound right? Of just like going after Casey Delacqua um, and her family? On the occasion of the birth of their child. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Just like, I'm not even talking about like beliefs and whatever. Manners? <laughs> Freaking rude. <laughs> like, just fucking rude. Just, just fucking rude, rude. Honestly. Just unbelievably rude. Um, yeah. But obviously taking it past that, beyond rude in terms of just what she said and everything. I I don't envy TA in terms of what they 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 need to they're going to have to make a decision and unfortunately for them or maybe they don't I mean maybe their decision is you know what we're just going to live in the intersection the, the 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 garbage fire intersection of all these things like I can't argue with Margaret she's right like everybody rolled out the red carpet for Rod 
So it does seem kind of weird that they don't roll out the carpet for Margaret. But really, this isn't really a feminism thing because, like, the reason why it's not because of, like, your accomplishments or your gender or the respect or whatever. Like, it's because of other things. And, like, Australia, and if you're Tennis Australia, is in a situation where it's like, do you acknowledge, like, the Australia that exists? And I'm not Australian, so maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm talking completely out of turn, honestly. But, like, do you – but it seems to me that, like – if you were TA, like, you would want to acknowledge the Australia that li- exists today as opposed to honoring the Australia that existed at another time. Um, <sighs> but I don't – I mean, I like I said, I don't envy them. But it's in a situation where, like, it's going to be an issue. It's unavoidable. I mean, the world number one on the WTA side is Australian. Yeah. And also happens and a very to be Casey Delacqua's best friend who wouldn't be playing if not for Casey Delacqua. Um, it, yeah, it's just, I, like I said, like I, I'm not looking forward to the season starting mainly because I would like a proper off season that like lasted proper three months. But this is one of the reasons I'm not looking forward to parachuting into, into Australia. I think it, it's going to be, it's going to be messy. <sighs> Yeah, it's been a big old mess. My basic two takes, well, I don't know how many takes I have, but like one thing I'll say is that for Margaret to equate herself with Rod Laver um, in their post-career modes make no sense because Margaret um, has not been, I mean, Rod, let me start with Rod. Rod has been this like picture of like gentlemanliness and pleasantness and completely harmless and just like nice to be around. And now he's sort of like a mascot for the Laver Cup and he's just someone who people you know, like and sort of smile when they see and he smiles back and it's just all nice and friendly. And that's been his persona. And that was more his persona, more or less when he was on tour. I mean, it was a very popular player on tour. Margaret, you know, has, has gone out of her way to antagonize people and to burn bridges and to create bad blood. I mean, she started this in the early 90s, I believe, when she ranted against uh, Martina Navratilova's, you know, lesbianism back then and just put in her nose places where it didn't belong. And that has consequences too. I don't think, I think it's ridiculous for Margaret to think that everything that she accomplished in her tennis career and her legacy, let's put it that way, was somehow over by the time that she hung up her racket. I mean, if, if, if Margaret had, you know, finished playing Grand Slam tennis, I don't know, 73, 74, whenever it was, and then, you know, never did the racket again and, and never, antagonize anyone again yes she got a 50th anniversary celebration however she chose to play her cards very differently from that and there are benefits to that i mean she has you know is a big symbolic figure for a lot of conservative australian circles now um and seen as seen as a bit of a martyr um which i think she enjoys significantly and then you know otherwise she but then you might not get invited to all the cool parties anymore like and that's them's the breaks mags i mean like you know Make your bed and lie in it with a person with the opposite gender, as you suggest. Yeah, I, I, have, I have no sympathy for her in this. Let me make that very clear. I don't think anyone's entitled to a 50th anniversary of Grand Slam party just because they threw one for one person doesn't mean they did it for everybody. I mean, are they going to throw one for Steffi Graf in, I don't know, uh, 2038? They will certainly Maybe. try. <laughs> they will try, but she might not show up. Yeah, I mean, no. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's complicated, but I mean, I... I like I said, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't envy TA. Like they're in a, they are being put in a really crap situation. Part of it is obviously their own making for naming a 
couple of arenas after people who are still alive, which we can always talk about that in terms yeah. of like whether or not yeah. you should do that. Which I mean, obviously the USDA is in the same situation for Billie Jean, yeah, Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, and et cetera, et cetera. But to the extent that you do do that and it backfires on you, this is the mess you have to clean up. No, Tennis Australia loves doing it. They also have Pat Rafter Arena and Ken Rosewall Arena floating around. So it's been something they've done I mean, a lot. To be fair, and, tennis yeah. is a very young sport. So like our legends are still alive. Like it's Mostly, not yeah. if you were actually named things after like dead legends, that list of the deserving names would I don't know, honestly kind of be a non existent really well, outside of maybe Althea and Arthur. And like Maria Bueno. And Suzanne Long Lawn is it. And yeah, Long Lawn's a good a good one as well. But like, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty short list. So I can see. How they fell and I will say, just, just to sort of add <laughs> to Titan Screws a little bit on Tennis Australia, I do still think that every year they have their tournament and it continues to be Mark Court Arena is an active decision for them um, and not a passive, you know, status quo. I think they have had every opportunity to change the name of that arena since, you know, the first protests of that naming really started in, I guess, 2012 with the rainbow flags or Mark Court Arena. Hold on, but question. Uh, yeah. I ask this genuinely, but wasn't there this whole thing about how the government was involved with that? Like they yes. actually can't so, just like change it. However, yes. So that, that is what Tennis Australia points to. However, I truly believe that if Tennis Australia decided they wanted the name changed, it would get changed. And Tennis Australia has never, ever tried to start putting that ball in motion. They've pointed to red tape in the distance as their reason for not doing anything. Instead of saying, they're not saying we want to change it, but it can't be changed. They're saying it would be difficult to change. And so I, I just don't believe that if Tennis Australia, which is the main occupant and the reason it got named after a tennis player in the first place, decided to want to undo that decision, they would get resistance. And someone's like, no, you must keep the name of this tennis player on your thing, tennis organization. Like, I just well, don't see I that mean, happening. If there were people who, I mean, I don't know. Once you take it into the political realm, it gets complicated. Yeah, no, it's fair. You know, I mean, like tennis, like. Yeah. I mean, if there was, I, I don't know, if there were like a voting block that was like anti-gay marriage or gay rights or whatever that wanted it to like not be that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just, I'm just trying to play both sides here. I'm just saying that, oh, like, that, you know, it may not be as easy as like you're making it out to be in terms of like TA wants it, TA gets it. I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. I, what, 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 I don't... what I'm trying to emphasize is that TA has not made it clear they want it. And so if they if T.A. made the stance, we would like the name to be changed, then I would more or less say, OK, T.A., you've made your you've made a clear choice. And if they were effective again, the name changed or not, I would not really hold against them, per se, if they ran into red tape later down the road. But they have not done that. So I don't think they get credit for red tape. They've no, not even tried. I, I, to poke I understand at your yet. argument. I understand yeah. your argument. Yeah. Um, speaking of people who have played in Market Court Arena, not a great segue. Two high-profile players who both reached number four in the world announced their retirements this past week. Uh, let's start with uh, Dominika Sibokova, Courtney, who could tell you that she made the Australian Open final and that she could tell you what the balls there smell like, which is a unique quality in a player. I made a tweet, by the way, a dumb week on Twitter, about how I joked that like Sibokova should get into the Hall of Fame for this talent alone of recognizing this balls by this the tennis balls by their odor and some people thought i was being serious <laughs> i was not being serious can i just say tennis twitter in the in the fall has been an absolute abject disaster oh people are real people are real cranky i don't really get it like i've been very it's been very difficult for me to read t 
TT uh, post USO. And like, I feel like it's been difficult for TT to read me as well. It, it goes both ways, but it's been, it's been uncomfortable. I have not enjoyed my time on tennis Twitter post US open. Just say it that way. Yeah. So Courtney, let's talk about Domenico Sibulkova. What will you remember most about Domi Pome away? First of all, Domenica Sibulkova invented the elevator selfie. The elevator selfie did not exist <laughs> before Domi. I don't even care. You can argue with me all you want. False. Her elevator in her building apparently is amazing, is what, what I've been told. And that, like, it was a big reason why she got that place was because of the elevator. So, like... I've because... heard stories about her place, by the way. Yes. Same Z's. Um, you probably heard them from me. Um, yeah. But, the, but, like, unbelievable. Like, so there's first of all that. Secondly, the first time I've ever seen a Louis Vuitton cell phone case was from Dominika Sabokova. She introduced me to a whole level of luxury that I had been, I had been just completely unaware of. She's a fancy lady and I love her for yeah. it. That being said, nicest human being on the earth. Like every time I ran into her, hey, how's it going? Always looked you in the eye, always said hi, regardless of win, loss, slump, yeah. win streak, whatever. Like an absolute gem of a human being. Her Great husband. Colleague in that way, for yeah, sure. exactly. Her husband, the nicest dude. The nicest. Like, gr just good stuff all around. That whole team had good vibes. And on top of all that, her tennis, pound for pound, the biggest hitter the sport has ever seen. It's not even close. It's not even close. Like, unbelievable what she could do when she was absolutely on and um i think that just like accomplishment wise her career you know you see players sometimes like they, they hang up their 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 rackets and you're like ah uh, they could have done more uh they left these titles on the table uh like whatever like domi is one of like kind of the first players at least within my career of covering tennis where i feel like she retired and i was like damn you had a fucking amazing career like you wrung every single, you know, bit out of it and left no yeah. stone unturned and did everything and more than what anybody would have thought that you would have been able to do. Um, total, massive overachiever in that way. Massively. Yeah. Um, total tip of the cap. We'll absolutely miss her vibe. Um, yeah. Just love that kid. Amazing. She played. She played what Mary Carrillo would call big babe tennis. Yes. Despite being what, like five foot four or five foot three. Uh, like she I keep going down. <laughs> well, <laughs> she was shorter than me and I'm five three. Okay. That's great to know because I also, that's also a good reference for the photo of her Diego Schwartzman, which I posted <laughs> this week, which is a whole different issue of Diego height truth. <laughs> but yeah, like Domi played this like super fearless, you know, aggressive style of tennis that was like really unapologetic. And especially, and she was just like very in your face on court in this way, which I'm sure would have annoyed the heck out of me if I was a player playing against her. Um, but in a way that I would also respect, like her intensity, which is off the charts. And you just knew when, like, she was had dug her teeth into a match that she was not letting go. There was this thing about her that was kind of like, this is what I got to do to win. Like, you know, like I got to hit the ball like this. My attitude has to be this. Like, and because she was so kind of tiny. Like, you kind of forgave her in a way that maybe we wouldn't forgive a Naomi Brody if she acted this way. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it'd be like, okay, yeah. calm down. But, like, with with Dominica or you're, you're Domi, you're just like, yeah, no, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds – that adds up to me. I think that she 
um, yeah, there's certainly she was grating to some people for sure. She and Maria Sharapova, for example, did not get along very well uh, off quarter on from all accounts. But yeah, um, she was somebody who, yeah, just her, the fire she brought was a great source of renewable energy for the tour. And we'll miss that for sure. And just like seeing her when she was on, like peak Domi was like a treat to behold. And having seen it in several times, was just yeah i'll remember those moments for sure and, and she was somebody also who like when she was going through her sort of down cycles it never felt like disaster because you're always again with the overachieving thing i was like her coming back down to earth always felt reasonable like i felt like i always had like was always just impressed whenever she did anything in terms of putting results together yeah, and getting to number true. four in the world winning singapore uh yeah a lot of a lot of really really cool what is results it australian open so. final uh rolling gear semi-final Right and uh, Wimbledon quarter. Yeah, Slam I think that's right. I mean, that's maybe maybe multiple quarters. I think at Wimbledon and U.S. Open, I believe. Yeah, I mean that's that's just. I mean, and then and then to win obviously the finals. I mean, uh, Wuhan finalist. I mean, she had some. I mean, when you go through and actually like parse out her career, I mean, yeah, uh, stunning, stunning stuff. So let's get to another Central European tennis player who also retired. Uh, this week, or it was announced his retirement this week and was in the on-court ceremony in London uh, from some part of the world, Thomas Burditch, who also picked at number four, but I think had was a much sort of bigger fixture of his tour than Domi was reliably on hers. Burditch is somebody who, you know, won his, I think he won the 05 or 04 Paris Bercy Masters. So he'd been on tour for a long time, beat Federer at the 04 Olympics famously. That was sort of his first big result. And it was like a fixture in the top 10 in this way that like you'll have to mention Burditch a lot or watch a lot of Burditch if you're ever doing like a retrospective on the big three or big four. Like you'd see Burditch across the net a lot. And he was, I think you mentioned, you framed before Courtney, Andy Murray as being like the best of the mortals in the big three era. And I think Burditch is like a pretty, for me, a pretty clear second, like yeah. second best mortal. Granted, a big step below Murray. Because he only won one Masters title. But a big step ahead of Ferrer. I think so. I mean, <laughs> I, I do think so. I mean, like, Ferrer is interesting because Ferrer was, to me, never the sort of threat that Burdish was. Like, if you were going, showing up to, like, quarterfinal day at a slam and it was insert big four player against Burdish, I'd always be a little bit more, like, edge in my seat about the Burdish match than the Ferrer match. Because Ferrer never beat uh, Federer, I believe, in his whole career. And never beat, I don't think he ever beat Djokovic in a slam, I think. I might be wrong on that, but I don't think he did. And But Burdich beat all the big four at slams at yeah. some point. And like peak Burdich was like really, really good. And like just aesthetically, I loved his tennis. He was one of my, you know, before I was a journalist, he was one of the players I liked watching the most. I loved his like super pure ball striking. The Adidas he used kids. To wear, no, the Nike kids. Nike when kids, I'm sorry. Nike, yeah. I was about to point this out. Like when Thomas Burdich for a period was the best was sort of like the, was the Grigor, I guess, in terms of where he fit in the Nike catalog of like, and he got his own Nike polo shirts, like collared shirts. And they were always like the best looking outfits on immense tennis. Dude look clean. It's a stylish, snappily dressed man. Like so fresh, so clean. So fresh, so clean. And it matched his tennis like really well. Like it just like, it was all like very put together tennis and just like very much how you would draw it up if you were like making a tennis textbook everything seemed really nice now granted like that you know he wasn't an amazing mover and didn't win the wasn't the federer 
who was probably a you know similarly textbook but actually one things kind of player at the top. But at the same time, Burdich was always somebody, and it's frustrating because like everyone will talk about Burdich immediately and start talking about what he didn't do. You know, he didn't win a Grand Slam. He didn't you know get to number one. He didn't ever you know consistently knock off the big guys as much as we'd hoped he would. But like, gosh, was he good at like holding his own? And like when you look at his career in isolation and talk about what he did do, like staying on top of like I said the mortal pack was was massive and he was definitely a huge value add for the sport i think for a long time and like also like a fair a low-key super spicy person to have around <laughs> burdich would like burdich was not afraid of encore drama burdich was not afraid of like sort of like press room barbs and things he would not like to be compared to lucas rosol for example <laughs> and like for somebody who like yeah people was like sort of a monotonous kind of speaker like was actually like super interesting super engaging and yeah low-key spicy thomas burdich I will miss Thomas Burdick. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think that um, it's interesting as you kind of described his kind of career arc and and the different, um, obviously incredible ball striker. Um, but you know, over time, like when I first started getting like re, like integrated into tennis, so like probably like oh six, oh seven, oh eight, um, when I started to like really like get into it the way that I am into it now, like when I first saw Thomas Burdick play, I was like, oh my God, this is so pure. Like right down to the Chris Polo shirts, the f- the forehand, unbelievable striker. Like this is a familiar style of tennis as, as what I was like used to seeing, just like cleaner and bigger, um, you know, of what I liked when I was growing up, like, you know, and the, the kind of the baseline tennis and, and then, and, and I loved him and he was like my, one of my favorite players, like short list, like, you know, top like three or four, yeah. like loved Burdick. Me too. And yeah. then all of the things that he couldn't do just started to pile up <laughs> and you just began to lose complete and utter faith in him. And obviously for me, at least it all came down to that Murray match um, at the Australian open and, and Murray basically rattling him mentally. And it obviously created the he rattled myth. himself. He rattled himself, but like, you know, it created the Kim Sears myth of just being like a badass bitch. Like, like showing up the you know with the parental oh. advisor it's just good stuff um so i was thinking back at that because i was thinking with burdish that he was one of the few people sorry to interrupt but he was one of the few people who had a winning record against one of the big four for a significant stretch of time and that was against murray he was like eight and six against murray or something okay tallest midget in the circus but <laughs> it completely fell apart yeah when he said good job Thomas to himself at the end of that first set when he won the first set of that quarterfinal I think in Australia <laughs> and he did not win a set against Andy Murray ever again I <laughs> mean and that's so just quickly. he that's was like, just such what, a glass cannon that guy. yeah I mean the dude was that was that was Thomas right like I mean he was so good and so clean and technically sound and yeah he wasn't the fastest but he moved well enough and and yet that 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 head of his would just he just didn't have the killer instinct and between i mean it's fascinating to me like how much like andy murray's career kind of impacted thomas burdick's probably more than any other player i'm i haven't thought this out i'm just going to say it and see how it okay. goes but like more than <laughs> any player on the atp andy murray's career impacted thomas burdick the most a because of what you just said that whole situation b um, that Yvonne Lendl refused to ever coach yeah. uh, Ter- Burdick, which I thought was so rude. But like, yeah, rude. like Burdick like straight up wanted Lendl to coach him. Check to check. Like, 
best last check male player to the newest check the best check male player that they'll have for a long ass time and like lendl still was like nah i'm good <laughs> brutal absolutely wow. brutal um yeah so so i will miss thomas um yeah he was a nice guy he was salty when he wanted to be but you know i mean kind of like a like a like a male pliskova or pliskova's a he female like- burdick he was oftentimes, you know, like the flavor packet in the ramen that sort of added some seasoning to otherwise pretty bland dishes. Whether it was like a match with him and like Al Magro in Australia. It's like, oh well, my Thomas Burditch yeah. will, will have feelings about this and we'll spice this one up. And, you know, yeah, just like and did it in this way that was like always like never was, was petty without ever feeling like, you know, out of bounds. In this way that I think was like a nice level of spice, like a, like a you know, just the right amount of, of spice to have at certain dishes. That he presented on tour, and yeah, and his results were good. I mean, he made aside from his semi they were great. Yeah, besides from besides from his final, I'm just really good. I should I'll modify that. He made a one Grand Slam final, but then also looking at this, six other Slam semis, and he lost in the quarterfinals five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten more times. So like he was a, like furniture at the business end of tournaments. He was always there, and and that sort of like and he kept the level of tennis pretty high and he was not somebody like i said with ferrer he was not somebody where he when he did face the big three big four it did feel more like let's see what happens here to me it did feel like he was not quite as obvious of a pushover in some of those occasions so um yeah must try thomas burdish you know he will not miss him on tour but it might be said that he never got to beat him is kevin anderson <laughs> it was like famously like oh and 12 against thomas burdish yeah i think i don't think he ever got to beat him i'm wrong about that but i don't think they ever played in a later era. And it was like within like a three year stretch. He played like every Grand Slam and lost him. It was it was rough. Um, yeah, so that's Thomas Burdich. And also on the retirement front, uh, the Bryan brothers announced that next year will be their last year. Not a big shock, um, but they will be. Yeah, it does seem like seeing the the row of guys standing for acknowledgement um, in London, the ceremony they had, which included Ferrer, included Almagro, Eugenie, Baghdadis, Burdich. A few more. It does. It, it was sort of like a little. We feel like a little bit of a preview of what the next while is going to be like because there really is this sort of built-up dam of players who have hung around the tour into ages in which we wouldn't expect them to when they started their careers. And at some point, they're all going to go. And uh, this week, with both Burdich and Sibylkova, feel like a little bit of a test run to get you used to what that will feel like because it's going to be much bigger names in the near future yeah 2020 is going to be a dramatic season and it's going to be a season of like the in memoriam reel at the end of 2020 uh combined Mm -hmm. between atp wta is going to be pretty pretty significant and pretty massive so like my only advice to everyone going into 2020 is like everybody chill out like keep the stakes as meaningfully i mean they're going to be high stakes and we can't run from that but like be cool about the high stakes understand that like it's okay if people don't hit them and just recognize that like and just like take it all in and just always acknowledge and be wary and mindful of the fact that like the match that you're watching a player play could very easily be their last Mm. i'm just saying 2020 is going to be a mosh yeah there will be a lot of a lot of farewells for sure. Speaking a lot of, of which, montagery. Uh, yes. Barbara Stritzeva 
in Shenzhen. This wasn't overly reported only because I think I ran out of time, and but I'll put it somewhere, but I can say it here because she said it in a public press conference. But okay. um, because at, at Wimbledon, she had said that she had been thinking about retiring. Yeah. Obviously, she finished this year at the at number one uh, in doubles. Uh, but she said that she will be playing with Shea Sue and in singles in Australia, but she hasn't thought past that and will not think past that until that is done. As so, I thought past Australia. Interesting. Okay. Yes. So just, uh, again, just be mindful. Okay. Like I said, like, I feel like that's going to like happen a lot of like, I don't know if like a lot of the players have like made decisions of like where the hammer will drop. But I think that there's a lot that know that it's going to drop at some point next year. All right. Well, that's so very, uh, very sort of Damocles over the tour. I like it. <laughs> uh, I, but I like it. I mean, I hate it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we got no. Like several... honestly, the off season. Yeah. I'm no, spending. I... I'm spending a lot of yeah. my off season writing like career obituaries. Yeah, That's sure. like a lot of. But my. Are, the are next you prepping month... them for when they for for like once they haven't happened yet? Like very New York Times having a folder of obituaries. Yep. Ready to go. Much. Wow. Wow. Yep. I like happening. it. I so like I'm it. In, I'm in a dark space, guys. But I'm also planning, which is like I don't know. It's growth for me. That's yeah. It's, it's off brand. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of somebody who had their obituaries written uh, a while ago and is coming back, Kim Kleisters announced yes. since we last did a show together that she is planning a comeback to tour. She was targeting the Australian swing uh, January for her comeback. Has since delayed that. I believe she had a knee injury in training. Uh, in paddle. And in, uh, playing paddle. She was playing paddle and she hurt her knee. <laughs> Yikes. Um, According so, to the story, yeah. So, Courtney, what do you make of Kim's retirement announcement? She had been off tour it was seven years ago she retired. Um, this, this is one of the longest ever high-profile comebacks, like up there with like Kimiko Date, essentially. What do you make of Kim coming back, and and what are fair expectations for Kim in 2020? Assuming again that her health recovers and she gets back, which I hope she does if she wants to. Yeah, I mean, I I spoke to Kim obviously when she made the announcement. Um, Great interview. Everyone should read it, by the way. Ah, uh, thank you. And I think that one of the you know, because obviously when I had heard or was told, hey, this this is happening, like, can you talk to Kim? Like, whatever. I was like, my mind was reeling. Like, I was like, why? And what? And huh? Like, I was just really confused. Um, And what kind of calmed, I guess, my mind down or at least gave clarity to the whole decision is when Kim said, you know, um, I have a lot of friends who say, like, they want to run a marathon before they're 40. And she's like, this is my marathon. Yeah. Like, and I think that that just gave a very good um, insight into how she sees this, that she's not necessarily maybe unlike the first time when she came back, she's not coming back because she has unfinished business. She's not coming back because like, you know, there, there are all these like jokes on Twitter and like whatever, like, oh, she sees like, you know, Bianca winning the US Open and she's like, oh, I'm going to come back now. Like, you know, like. It's not a commentary of the current state of the tour. It's none of these things. It really is for her, and especially if you read the interview or it's actually a podcast. I, I think I posted the entire mm-hmm. audio you file did, yeah. as well. And I would encourage people to listen to it just because you can hear, obviously, Kim in her own words. But um, I think that, you know, in addition to kind of treating it like this is my marathon, but also like she's kind of basically says what you read between the lines like look I was not taking care of myself like I was a mom and I was like we were running late to school and I just wasn't eating well and I was just taking whatever was left over from the kids and you know whatever and I think that 
especially not just in that interview, but having spoken to Kim the last few years, whenever I've seen her, like my sense is kind of a little bit of like, she just, a lot of this is like, she just kind of wanted to get in shape again. Yeah. Um, to kind of, and that the competitive athlete in her was kind of getting starved. Like that. She's essentially like, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say like, she just feels like a a mom returning to work. Right. Yeah. And, Wanting stimulation from that, yeah. Exactly. And I what I really loved about what she was saying in the interview was was that. It, in, 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 it's kind of like this flip side of like, you know, you hear this one narrative of moms, which is totally obviously validated which and valid, which is, oh, I love being a mom and oh, but I have to work, you know, like, oh, you know, like whatever. But I would love to be with my kids and I just that's what I want to do. But oh, I have to work. And Kim, honestly, the last couple of years talking to her was kind of the opposite. She's like, look, I love being a mom, but oh, my God, I'm totally fine when I'm not around them. Like, like, you know, like I I do like being on tour and I like like playing the Legends events and I don't mind being away from them for two weeks so long as I know that they're OK. And, you know, the casseroles are in the fridge and Brian's good and et cetera, et cetera. Like, oh, my gosh, it's so amazing to just not be around my kids for like a week. And then I miss them again and I go home. She's and, trying to have it all, you know. It's like having a, yeah, a, a complete life if she feels like she wanted more yeah, more challenge than just – not you know, very much finger quotes here, just being a mom. Right, exactly. And I think that that's something that like with Kim, it does matter to her. I mean she's so physical and she is an athlete. Like, And so she said like even if like – you know, basically, once she started thinking about coming back, like she really was training really, really hard physically. And so when I spoke to her after the US Open, so it would have been September, she was like, yeah, I've been thinking about it, like, kind of really since like around Wimbledon, I think she said. And she said, even then, she's like, if I never come back, like even the work that I've done since then, like, I'm so happy, like, with how much better she feels physically, mentally, all that sort of stuff. So all that is to say, like, I don't think that Kim's coming back thinking that she's going to, like, win the U.S. Open or, like, you know, win titles necessarily. And she's going to probably play a very limited schedule and, you know, and things like that and, and you know, rely on wild cards until she gets her ranking up, if she can get her ranking up and things like that. But I think this is really just for her. Um, and I think that's that's pretty great, honestly. Like, yeah. I, it's a very, in my opinion, a very low stakes comeback. Um, but inspirational in its own way, in a very different way than maybe like the typical on tour mom stories have been, you know, especially Serena's. Um, yeah. Well, Vika, I think Vika and True. Serena probably have the, a very similar, you know, Vika is very much like if you ask me to like, I would always rather be with my son. I don't want to be here, but like I have to like, you mm. know, that sort of thing. Um and probably like Tatiana Maria and, you know, yeah. like I've got to make money, you know. And I think that with Kim, it really is like I'm doing it for like myself. And yeah, yeah it I don't know. It's quite nice. So once I spoke to her and kind of got a sense of all that, I was like, oh, OK, this is I'm not like freaked out about this anymore. <laughs> like, you know, like if you lose in the first round of the Australian Open, like it's not cataclysmic. Like, you know, like it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. On to the next. On to the next comeback. Very brief shout out to Tatiana Golovan, who's also planning. Come- actually, did already come back. She played. She played in the qualifying draw of Luxembourg, and you can guess which British te- British tennis writer I awoke to a message of <laughs> OMG and had to go googling for what he was searching about. Y'all just say noted Tatiana Golovan. The Guardian Stan. is lucky to have him. 
lucky to have Tiamani Carriol for all their future upcoming Tatiana Golovan needs <laughs> on their sports desk. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I talked to her actually um, for a different project I'm working on. And she really like hers seemed like a lot less planning went into it. She was starting to feel okay physically and really was only training for like a month or two before Luxembourg and did not give herself like a ton, I believe that's right. Like maybe three months did not give herself a ton of time to like play all the way back. And just like, but, I, but she, unlike Kim, like really had her career halted when she was very young. I think she's still, gosh, she's probably still only like right. 30, 31. She's like Sharapova's age roughly. So she'd be 31, 32 maybe. Um, yeah, she was the Sharapova, uh, Ivanovich, Golovan, that was like yeah. an Vitasova ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vitasova so, was a little bit younger, but yeah, that group. So she, anyway, but she like had her as horrible back condition that sidelined her from 2008 on. She has had, I think, a couple kids since then, and maybe maybe just one. Um, she had, had gone through that whole process, and yeah, um, but she's somebody who just I think really wanted to like have her career not end on that note. And I don't know what her expectations are, what her you know. Her first two matches, I think she played like 100K in France. It didn't go particularly well for her, but also it's so early in the process that I, don't, I think she had her eyes very sort of much wide open. And even if it's just sort of adding a better last moment on court than she felt like she got, I'm happy for her already. And again, it's another sort of low stakes comeback for somebody. Again, just to mention Serena again. Serena, we talked about this before, she always has so much pressure on her every time she's on court. Um, and so I think hopefully maybe this maybe the cluster thing is somebody can relax Serena. She's somebody else there who's just sort of like, I don't know if this will actually re- relate to her or should apply to her at all, she'll think. But like just somebody there who's like Or she there. can look and be like, well, I'm doing so much better or like, I'm, or, I don't or know. Just, maybe. just even saying like, hey, like you can come back and be a Grand Slam champion and just like have you really cool that you're still here doing this. And like appreciate that side of it rather than having it all be so results oriented. Yeah, but the difference That's not Serena. is that she, yeah. but Serena's made it results oriented. Yeah. Like. The chasing of 24 is not something that we all plucked out of thin air. Yeah. It's a thing that was given life by and, – and, and not given life, but that it's what Serena wants, is what Patrick wants, 24, 25, like to, to bust the record. And, and so, therefore, that number lingers over everything. But, um, you know, if she were to come out tomorrow and say, like, look, I don't give a crap about that record anymore and I should have never given a crap about that record, then, then maybe – all the the pressure would dissipate before the Australian Open. Like it would just be like, all right, let's just play. Maybe I don't know if it would, but it it would be lesser than it is now. Like if she were to make that announcement tomorrow, then on Tuesday, the pressure going into the Australian Open is already lesser than it is today, Sunday. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it, it, it Golovan at least. I mean, not at least, but yeah, her her career was taken away from her due to injury. So. You know, at least she gets a second bite at it. But it's interesting because um, in Shenzhen, we spoke to uh, Martina Hingis yeah. and Agnieszka Radwańska uh-huh. uh, about Kim coming back. And it was interesting to hear their comments about it because both of them were co- – and I doubt that the t- those two were talking to each other to get their stories straight. Um but they were both – the upshot of both of their comments similarly was, yeah, let's see how that happen- That goes down. Of kind of like – They were skeptical. From, oh. They were skeptical, yeah. I mean like Hingis – and which is fine. You can be skeptical. I don't think – but again, that implies that like Kim's trying to come back and do a thing. Like I think Kim's just like, let's see how it goes. Like, you know, she's not saying I'm going to go win titles and stuff like that uh, yet. 
But but Hingis was very much like, yo, I tried to come back in singles and I couldn't like physically. It's really hard. And so I came back in doubles like eventually. And that's what I was able to do. And then like from Radvanska, who's another player who basically her career ended because of because of injury and because of the physicality and the toll um, of the tour was it was the same. Like every single like kind of player. um, I think Pliskova was also like kind of skeptical. Uh, A lot of players like Simona, Svitolina, Mm. like a lot of the players just like, yeah, like, let's see how it goes. But the thing that they all pointed to was the physicality of it all. Seven years like, is a long time. Yeah, and and it was just kind of this acknowledgement, I think, from across the board of all the players who have played in that time period, from Hingis and Aga all the way down to, like, the youngsters, of just, like, it's physically really hard right now. Like, you can want it, you can be super good, but physically, it's tough. But, yeah. you know, Kim, I'm sure Kim will play, like, a light schedule, and, you know, so she's not going to have to do with, like, the 10-month grind yeah. of the tour. And Kim was a like part-timer still, when she stopped, too. In 2012, she was yeah, playing a pretty part-time yeah. schedule. So. And Serena's a part-timer. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's it's not unprecedented. We got a few questions we can wrap up with. The first, most basic one comes from our buddy Peter Tyguy, who just yeah. sent a photo. I don't know if we talked about this on the show. I don't think we did, actually. I was thinking about it. Um, he's a big Andy Murray fan. And he sent a photo of the hallway handshake, Courtney, between you and Andy Murray, <laughs> Cincinnati. And as you just to discuss that moment, please. <laughs> set that, let's set that one up for us. I'm pretty sure that I told Peter the entire story. So actually, in Cincinnati, over burgers, I'm pretty sure this is just Peter trying to embarrass me publicly. Yep, probably. Which, to, Fair play. Well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I tip my cap. Um, I don't know how to... How, I don't know how to describe it like via audio. Like I feel like so much of it is a visual thing, but basically what had happened is that in Cincinnati, obviously it was Andy's first tournament back, right? A uh, singles tournament. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. Singles tournament. Cause he had played doubles and or mixed and doubles in Wimbledon. But yeah, so it was Cincinnati and Andy was in press conference um, pre-tournament. And I was sitting right outside of the press conference room with, um, I think Sven. Yeah, Sven's the photo. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was interviewing Sven for a coaching dossier, um, and we had just finished up. And as we finished up, and we were standing up, and we were walking, kind of to kind of split up. He was going to go the elevator, and I was going to go the other way to the external stairwell. Um, Andy came out, and as Andy came out, there was like, you know, all the hoopla. There's cameras. There's there's uh, video cameras, uh, photography cameras. Maybe for people, a documentary, whatever. maybe. Oh, possibly. Yeah. So he comes out and he sees Sven and Sven's like, oh, hey. And they shake hands. And this may come to a surprise to people. I don't know. But I don't interact with players outside of like my professional capacity. Like, like I can think of maybe like four times in my entire like tennis career where that's not been the case. But like where I've gone to like dinner, had lunch or something like that. But outside of that, like, I'm very much like, these are the rules we talk, you know. So Andy comes out and I start like kind of like walking backwards like Homer in the gif. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my God, this is not it. This is uncomfortable. So he sees Sven, whatever, Shane shakes. And then he starts to walk away, but he sees me and he's like, hey. And he starts leaning forward and my feet and, and kind of takes a step towards me to, and puts out his hand to shake hands. Obviously, Andy and I know each other from like just like 
I mean, I yeah. used to cover the ATP and stuff. And he's and a he's big always tennis been... fan. Let's be clear. Obviously, obviously. Um, you follow Insider. He probably uh, he's not on Twitter that much. I bet he would if he was. Well, you know. Uh, but anyway, so he takes one step forward <laughs> and extends his hand, and he's like, "Hey," and my feet are not moving. <laughs> but I put my, your feet, heart. My, yeah. my heart is leaping towards him. But my feet just will not move. Like all that would it would have taken for me to make this not awkward is to take one step forward with my right foot and just like close the gap. But I can't do it. I don't know why. So my feet are just like in cement and I'm leaning forward. And it's just this very like I'm literally on one leg leaning forward, like as though we're figure skating. Beautiful. <laughs> and, like my back foot is kicked up and like shaking. I was like, hey, Andy. Anyways, it was really embarrassing. And it's not, it doesn't make good radio. I'm sorry that I just did that to everyone. I enjoyed it. But yeah, maybe it was one of those you had to be there, but it was mortifying. But it was also very nice that uh, just to say hello to him on his way back. We got another question from listener Mark Lyons, who asks uh, this is spamming off of the uh, Milan, one of the Milan innovations, which they stuck with all the years is that there are no line judges on court and everything is using a Hawkeye live technology uh, where they just have a, a recorded voice shouting out and actually several different voices and several different shouts of out on the court. And actually they had this World Team Tennis too. I was at a, a Castles match this summer and like there's different voices that match each line. So I was like imagining there's like a woman calling the left, the right baseline voice and there's like a man like on the left sideline. So I was imagining like giving them names. Oh, that, you know, Christine made that call, whatever. But Mark Lyons asks, why do we have lines people at WTA ATP events with Hawkeye? The game is faster and more physically demanding than ever. Why add to the player's task more in terms of like having to challenge and having to like look at line calls? He's saying he loves the next gen finals approach. And I will say most of the time that I've been at matches with the automated line calling, it's been pretty smooth. There is one notable exception, I guess, in Milan or one sort of kerfuffle with Orly Tort in the chair, the ball bounced, but they, the Hawkeye thought the ball had been hit before it bounced or something. It went to video. No, 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 no. That's not that any, what, that's not at all what happened. Okay, tell me The what ball happened. was unbelievably loud. Like it was like eight inches long of the baseline, a return oh, off of that, a serve. Not that far. And the, and therefore the, no, it was like eight inches long, like six to eight inches. It wasn't easily. the issue that like Kekmanovic, I think it was like, hit he the He hit ball, the ball like, after it bounced, really, but there like, was no out call. Yeah. There was no out call. No, he hit it like a half volley. But the ball was like well out, but there was no out call. Yeah. There was never an out call. And like Orly sees the video and is like, oh my God, that thing is so freaking out. Like what the heck? So then all hell broke loose. But my only my only thing is this. Why does everybody assume that Hawkeye is more accurate? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just going to come down to this every single time. Like, it's unbelievable to me. Like, that Hawkeye, which has a margin of error. Mm-hmm. It has it. And everybody thinks that it's like automatically right every single time. Whereas like everybody has this like weird people have this weird sense that like the lines judges are wrong like 90% of the time. Yeah. It's simply not true. Like it's simply really not true. Yeah. The line judges are unbelievable. They have to go through so much training and so much experience to get to that point to be where they are standing on a grand slam court or a premium like a top level court. Like, they're very good at what they do. The only difference is that they're the ones, when they make a mistake, there's Hawkeye to correct them. But when Hawkeye makes a mistake, no one's there to correct Hawkeye. So everybody assumes Hawkeye's correct. It's not. 
it's not like if, if we have to believe that it is in order to believe the system to believe in the system to give power to the system then fine that's okay but like don't pretend that you're not like just giving it the benefit of the doubt while not giving the benefit of the doubt to like human lines judges like mm-hmm. if people want to have like you know next gen finals whatever fine that's fine but like I just don't understand the fundamental thing of people insisting that somehow Hawkeye is more accurate. I just, like, I, it blows I my mind. Hawkeye, because of its sort of, like, visual proof methodology, I think gives this illusion of decisiveness a, that it but doesn't ben, deserve it's, the time. it's an algorithm. It's not even Fox 10. Yeah, Fox 10 is more Fox 10 proof, is, right? a, is visual proof. It is camera. It is literally the ball hitting the line in slow-mo. Like, okay. that's visual, not visual what Hawkeye is. I guess rather than proof, I guess I, I should say. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. a judgment can be wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I just, I it blows my mind how, like, just pervasive this basic assumption is that the technology is always right and somehow the humans are always wrong. Like, it's unbelievable to me. That's all. That's what I'll say about that. Like, if you like it at the the next-gen finals, fine. It's fine. If you want it everywhere, fine. Do Hawkeye everywhere. I don't care. But stop pretending that it's accurate 100% of the time Mm. because it's not. So that's just – I mean, that's just science. I mean, they say it. So they might not put it up every single time. In fact, what they should do, honestly, is whenever there's a Hawkeye challenge is actually having at the bottom, like, there's a, you know, plus, minus, blah, 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 like – probability of error yeah, but hawkeye would not do that yeah no they would not but that would be at least transparent and honest yep you are correct if it's uh, not one scam it's another <laughs> shout out to the no scam here with the speaking of milan the milan champion uh since rick and i last talked uh, we talked about him briefly but yannick sinner uh, I'm literally going to turn my mic off because I know you're going to monologue. So I'm just well, going to let it go. I, I mean, I'm more, I don't have like that much to say about Yannick Sinner per se. I'm just going to sort of smile and hope you hear it because Yannick Sinner has had this incredible year of going from like in the, I don't know, 400, 600, something like that at the start of the year, building up, playing really well in Challengers, playing pretty well in the Rome Italian Open, won its first tour match there against Stevie Johnson first round, and then played the match, was like, was not ranked high enough to get into French Open qualifying. And now, and then he played an amazing match first round of Wimbledon qualifying against Alex Bolt, which was a cult classic for everyone who was there. I think we'll get my votes for match of the year on either tour. It was amazing. And then, uh, yeah, and now he's, and it's been interesting to see him going really mainstream this fall when he's won, made the semifinals of Antwerp, I believe, beating uh, top seed. Who was a top seed there? Uh, someone. He beat someone there. And he also beat Tiafo and lost to Vavrinka eventually. Um, but yeah, but seeing Sinner like develop into a thing, it's been weird seeing this like super cultish thing go mainstream. I'm trying to think of what the there's probably some better like music example of when this happens. But it's been interesting seeing like everyone weighing in on Yannick Sinner and having him be this like well known person. It's not like a popular pick to make it to London next year because sits a past one next year and then made made it to London. So anyway, Sinner I think is the most dangerous men's floater in Australia next year and i'm looking forward to watching him and i hope he wears plenty of sunscreen to his first time to australia because it is bright out there kid be careful he's like a like a lizzo oh maybe lizzo's know. actually a good example yeah, lizzo's lizzo... a good example like because yeah like i remember seeing lizzo i only just realized this i mean i remember seeing her but um because i was going through all these i've been cleaning my office and so i've been i've 
have all these posters that are rolled up in the corner of my office, but I didn't know what they were. So I was like unrolling them. And then one of them is a concert poster for Slater Kinney. Opening for Slater Kinney was Lizzo. Wow. This was like 2000 and maybe 14 or maybe 15, 14, 15, mm-hmm. maybe. Anyways. But yeah, so it's like one of those where it's like she has existed for a very long time. And I've, I've known that she's existed for a very long time, but yeah. it's like very weird now within the last like year to be like, oh, damn, like people reel into her. Like, yeah, this is a great where example. She's like a, she's like the stand, like, like, I don't know. Like, there's a, I don't know. It's a similar vibe. I just hope that, like, Liz is a, a more hopeful example because I like current Lizzo, I'm totally cool with compared to like Maroon 5, who were cool yeah. and then stopped being cool in a hurry. Exactly. Or the killers. The killers were like really cool and then kind of, well, at least for me, they stopped. But, um, but yeah, no, I think Lizzo, Lizzo will keep it, keep it, or like Death Cab for Cutie. They got kind of, mm, weird. Mm. I don't know if they were Anyways, ever as mainstream as yeah. Lizzo, but yeah, I get I get what you're saying. I mean, they got OC'd. I mean, they yeah. were Seth Cohen's favorite band. <laughs> so, that's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, shout out to Yannick Center, always and forever. A couple more questions to get to. The next one is a fun one from the aforementioned friend of the show, Mike Cation. Past guest. Let me get the wording of this correct. Hold on. Commentator slash ball boy. Yes. You want to describe that while I pull up this question? That was amazing. I have no idea what happened. I just saw it from John Wertheim's Twitter. But Mike Cation, friend of the show, uh, who also is the velvety voice of the ATP Challenger Circuit and and the ITF, not Challenger Circuit, um, the USTA Pro Circuit, right? Right. Men's Pro Circuit, yeah. Mm -hmm. Men's Pro Circuit, yeah. So you can hear him on Tennis Channel and on streaming as well. But, uh, But apparently they were like short. Or they, they they were short a ball person, so like I guess this week he like jumped in and left his commentary position and shagged some balls, which is yeah. sweet. It's cool to see. No, I mean he's like he's an ultimate like workhorse awesome. on the tour. And he's just like and it's been very cool that Tennis Channel has been porting over a lot more of his commentary from uh the pro circuit onto the main tennis channel. They should be know, so lucky. Thing. Yeah, it's been great to have them do that when pretty much any time that Mike is on and there's no live tennis at tour level on, they start showing Mike's matches, and that's been awesome. That's been a huge yep. value add. You said you said you tuned in today when um, there was a champagne match. And they didn't have <laughs> they didn't have rights to the tour finals. But the for thing, Sunday, so the funniest thing about the last like couple of weeks is that because obviously I tr- I mean this isn't a diss on tennis channel. I just travel a lot, so I don't actually watch, despite being an American, watch a lot of um, tennis on tennis channel. But the last like since I've been home. There's been an absurd because it's obviously the quote unquote off season. Like there's been an absurd amount of like USTA Pro Circuit like yeah. challenger type events like on TV. So I've like probably honestly heard Mike more than any other tennis channel commentator this Lucky entire you. year. Yeah, <laughs> he's great. Lucky you. Uh, Big fan. Yeah. So so Mike's question, which is very shit stirring, and I appreciate, says um, without. Although he does caveat, without naming the player slash coach slash agent, what's the worst interaction you've had with someone off the court? I'll do mine. I, mine came, when he tweeted this, I had one reaction right away, um, which is not worst, is like subjective, but it's really the stupidest and most memorable. And Corny, you'll know, you know who I'm talking about. I'm pretty quickly in this story. There, I had tweeted something about a player's lack of preparation for a match or something. And days later, the coach of this player <laughs> walks past me at the U.S. Open Player Garden and just goes like, like in my ear as they're like not breaking stride walking past. And it was the most like juvenile, 
thing I've experienced as an adult from anybody. <laughs> and again, worse, it's not the worst. I immediately burst out laughing, but it was just like, what am I dealing with here in this sport where people think this is like an okay thing to do? And the lack of maturity from people who you would hope would know better. It's just often not there. And it was a symbolic thing that, yeah, worse is probably not the worst, but like that's the story that uh, will stick with me for sure was having that particular coach see me and make that noise to me, which is so odd and so weird. Anyway, that's my answer, Courtney. Do you have one? Ben, it's the same person. (laughs) 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 The one that I had in mind. Go ahead. It's the same thing, and it probably happened within like a day or two of your situation, but like literally never had interaction with this coach before. Yeah, as a coach, yeah. And obviously had, I mean, yeah, mainly with the coach and inter- had interactions with the player, but was walking down the hallway at the U.S. Open towards the player garden. And these two were walking past me. And I just kind of made eye contact, as I always do, and was like, hi. And they didn't respond. They just like, it was like that weird, like where you know it's awkward because like the interaction that you had with the person was like so obvious that like for them to ignore it made it obvious they would they were ignoring you very you know? intentional very effortful ignoring. very intentional yeah because yeah. yeah. there's like nobody else in the hallway and you know the u.s open hallway it's not like super wide nope they're not it's, wide you yeah. know so like i'm like i'm like hi and like nothing like both them just like um obnoxiously chatting away at each other i'm like okay um and then like as we pass like maybe like two or three steps past like after we passed each other like i hear them like like go like like (laughs) (laughs) and i remember because i literally stopped and like turned around and i was like i just was like did that just happen and i just went along with my life and my day like i didn't give a shit but like i just but it was just one of those most the at least for me absolutely the most absurd interaction that i've ever had with it was a coach the, slash player the level like of uh, like beyond like, yeah. like i'm really trying to rack my brain like i've never really had an agent yell at me i've never really i've never had a player yell at me or really be rude to me that i can recall i mean if i did you would have heard about it so you can like correct me if i'm yeah, wrong i can't remember too many people getting yeah but it's funny that we're talking to the same person the same week is what came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> he had himself quite a week. That's so stupid. Uh, <laughs> it's like, what? Ugh. And it's so dumb that it st- the dumbness sticks with you. Like it's, the just du- like it's the dumbness. It's not like I literally went on with my life. Like I was like, okay. <laughs> I've had people be mean to me, like actively mean or like insulting me that like leaves less of an impact <laughs> than just someone choosing this incredibly <laughs> dumb road. Like this is how I will communicate. And yeah, it's just, that's, that's amusing. Yeah. I'm really racking my brain to think of like another, I mean, sure. I was like, cause when you started to tell yours, I was like, oh no, I don't want to tell mine, but like, cause it's the same, you know, culprits, but, I can't. I, I can't think that of we, another one. It's good that we agree on this. Honestly, I think it oh, adds yeah. validity to both of our choices. <laughs> All right, and then the last, uh, the last one we have is a question. Let me find this one. Uh, this person briefly, and I think they meant it as you know, not. I don't know if they meant it as an actual question, but we're going to treat it like an actual question. 
what they asked, I asked, what should we cover in this episode? And he's, and this question comes from Duck to Black Swan, who says, blocking people who don't agree with you. So, Courtney, let's talk about Twitter blocking briefly. <laughs> so, I was thinking before the show, I said this reminds me a little bit of our opening episode of NCR, NCR 1. And now that we're on 236, which is a kind of deflated artificially number. But on episode 236, we were talking a lot about respecting the timeline. Or sorry, episode one, talking about respecting the timeline, not, you know, polluting things with spam tweeting and sort of making clear. Because Twitter was much newer at that point in 2012. People did not. It was the Wild Wild West. Yeah. So people would like retweet a lot of compliments or whatever that was uh, not necessary. By the way, pro tip, if there's somebody you follow who retweets too many things that are not interesting to you, you can turn off that person's retweets, which is a Correct. huge, huge way to keep certain people uh, followable. So um, <laughs> I'm assuming you know who I mean. Um, Stop subtweeting me. <laughs> I'm sorry you don't like my film tweets, Ben. But the if people need to know. you tweeting all of them, that'd be fine. But yeah, uh, <laughs> no. Um, okay, so Courtney, what is your thoughts on, on blocking? And when, when should a person block? Okay, here's the thing. Ain't nobody have the right to follow you. Yes. Like, that's just the bottom line. Like, I don't really give a crap why somebody blocks me. And I don't really give a crap why I block other people. Like, you are not entitled. No one is entitled to follow anybody else on Twitter. And who, for whatever reason, I'm in a bad mood and you said a shitty thing. Or, like, you just, I don't know, whatever. I just didn't like the look of your profile pic. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't even matter. But at the end of the day, like... I and I've said this a gazillion times on the podcast. Like I, I personally tweet Twitter very much like an enormous bar. Like so, if I'm there and I'm having conversation with my friends in the corner, great. And that's honestly the only reason I go to bars. Like I'm not there to meet new people. I'm there to talk to the people that I like and to like, yeah, just shoot the shit and have a good time. If somebody walks by and says a shitty thing to me and my friends. Yeah, I'm going to be like, yo, get the hell out of here. Like, you're not I'm I'm not going to entertain you as part of this conversation. Like, I'm not required to listen to you, nor are you required to listen to me. You can walk across the way to go stand at the other side of the bar or find new friends. Like, there is no obligation on Twitter that we all get along. Like, that's right. just not true. And everyone should I mean, not only do they have the right to, but everyone should actively, I cannot stress this enough to everyone, you should actively be curating your Twitter timeline, like blocking people, muting people. And honestly, like I saw um, one of my favorite uh, Twitter follows, Yelena Subatic, um, on Twitter retweet something where it was like somebody was just like, you know, like just block me like muting is is cowardly. And I'm like, I kind of like that, actually. Like, no. good point. Like, just just block people. It's fine. And just like just build your own little happy, safe space on the Internet, because we all know that there's so much crap out there and there are a lot of crap people. And there are people who are very nice people who aren't crap people, but they do crap things on the Internet that impact you and your mood and all of that self-care people like protect your zone on Twitter and it'll be so much more of an enjoyable experience. And I have to say like, as somebody who like, like in the beginning, I never blocked anybody like ever. I yeah, yeah, didn't block anybody I, for I would the mute first people. like first yeah. years. I remember my first block very specifically actually. Yeah, and, and a lot of it was kind of like that weird, oh, I don't want to give them the satisfaction, like this weird, like, um, 
like block being blocked as a badge of honor. And then I just like thought about it more. I was like, that's like the dumbest stupid thing. <laughs> like this idea of like, why should I give a crap about what a stranger thinks? Like, oh, they're going to walk around and be like, oh, Courtney blocked me. I'm so real. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You go on with your life and you live yours. I'll live mine over here. It's perfectly fine. If that's a big, like, you know, like Girl Scout badge for you, you do you. I'm glad that it makes you happy because I'm happy over here not having to listen to your bullshit. So all that is to say, block whoever the heck you want. Like if they disagree with you, if they're an ass to you, if you just, they're not even ass to you. They're just an ass in general and they never interact with you, but you don't like them. Block it. Whatever. You don't have to justify it. Ever. Ever. Yep. No, completely. And I, yeah, I definitely, I was looking through, because you can see how many people you've blocked on Twitter. I've only in my years on my, gosh, like 10 years on Twitter now, um, like I've only only blocked 34 people, which I'm looking at. That's like, that's way too low. I should block like more people than you that. You should be blocking way more people, dude. And I, but I, I used to be a big muter. I've muted 300 people. Uh, but then there are people who I would mute, and then I would sort of see through like further replies. They would be like, in my mentions, invisible to me, like talking shit. And I just don't need to permit that. Like, I don't need you to give give you a space in my garden under my tweets and my replies to like do that. So, you know, if there's repeat offenders, especially who like are constantly doing that or people even I had one person, you know, always like plugging their articles or their books or whatever in my mentions. I was like, I know I'm not going to let you do that. Yeah, don't. Goodbye. And I'd never I've never regretted a block in all my time. Yeah, that's the thing. And so, yeah. And so you're right. Like there's a sense of entitlement, maybe especially like. As journalists, or there's like cases where like Trump got sued for blocking somebody. Yeah, that's like a different situation when you're like a government official or president or whatever. We as private citizens do not have those obligations to have to tolerate you being obnoxious or you being rude or you doing things that make our Twitter experience more unpleasant or more damaging. Like we don't have to have a certain threshold for, yeah, for bad treatment. And yes, I, you know. I think I definitely have a thicker skin than most people on Twitter, which is very valuable to me. You do. But, at the, but the same, which is also dangerous because I just stick myself in any fire possible. But <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I also, and so that's probably let people go further with me than they have. And I've had several people sort of comment after, you know, a block happens or something like, wow, I'm surprised he hasn't blocked me yet. And I was like, well, maybe I should. If you if you think that you deserve to get blocked and I haven't blocked other people with similar behavior, I don't know. Yeah. All is to say. I encourage blocking, um, especially people you don't know. Like, no one's entitled to make your day worse if you feel that way. And it's like, it's. Int- I remember seeing early in Twitter days a tweet from somebody that I liked that was being like, uh, oh, when you get followed on Twitter by someone you never heard of, it's like, cool. Oh, wow. They must think I'm cool and great. And that's cool that I'm like worth, you know, wow. That's nice. And you get friended by someone you don't know on Facebook, you think it's so creepy. <laughs> And like, so true. <laughs> and so like, but why should it be that different if to you, you know, depending on how you want to do your Twitter or how public or how much of a profile you want to build per se, like if there's someone there who you don't, you know, trust to be part of your network, then just decline oh, yeah. like you would a friend request. Well, it's, it's like I was saying, like in the early days of Twitter and of social media, but particularly Twitter, it really was the wild, wild west. There was no rules. There were no, we were just kind of all figuring out like what exactly this whole specific medium that was word-based manual RTs um, were wild oh manual RTs were crazy um you know remember when we all had a big cow at about 280 and it's like oh. now it's like yeah 280 is not that big of a deal you guys <laughs> well, thank god it makes like <laughs> thank god for here. 280 yeah. um but yeah like you know like all these sorts of things and 
you know, and if you, you extend that analogy to now, like the wild, wild west, yes, you ran out, you, you put your flag down, the government gave you land and you got to cultivate it and whatever. And we all had shotguns because you had to protect your land, et cetera, et cetera. But over time you, you build fences and you get, you barbed wire is invented, all these sorts of things, you know, and that goes on into, you know, instead of homesteads, you had neighborhoods and you had locks and like people aren't just allowed to like walk into your house these days and scream at your face. That's just Hopefully like not, not a yes. thing. Yeah. That's just not a thing that happens. So like it's okay to like block people. And I will say, like, I've never blocked somebody just because they disagreed with me. No. Like that's literally never been a reason why I would block somebody personally. Like if I blocked you, then it was just like, I don't know. Whatever. I just felt like it. But it wasn't because like you disagree with me. I do not want to hear your opinion. And like, here's the thing. I, I trust no. I trust everybody with this. And even like if I haven't heard the case. If I was like Judge Judy and someone's like, you know, plaintiff says defendant blocked her unfairly. I was like, well, case dismissed. I don't care. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I remember, I remember when I think Carol Bouchard. You gotta say deep, it with a more New York accent. <laughs> Carol Bouchard, deep friend of the show, um, was was someone she I think came up with her Patreon or her book or something. And I was like, yeah. go follow Carol. You know, go get her book. Go support Carol. She's great. And she's like, it's like, well, why did she block me then? And I was like, I'm sure you deserved it. <laughs> know what happened i don't need to see the evidence i'm sure you deserved it and if yeah don't buy her book if you then feel offended or hurt by that okay fair enough but like don't get mad that you did because there are people also i've had plenty of people i've encountered and you may have too courtney who i've been blocked by who i've never seen before who like i'll click on like a quote tweet or something that doesn't work or a link or a username yeah, and then sure. I, I see that like oh this person's blocked me and i'm always like Okay, and if for some reason, yeah, I'm just if, like, if okay, me, you don't me, want my dumbass tweets in your t- timeline, right, touche. Right. If like, my, if my I wouldn't want were, them either. Yeah. If my tweets, <laughs> if my tweets it pains me make, to tweet them. If my tweets were somehow making your Twitter experience worse, I'm glad that you're happier without me. Good for yeah. you. Live your best life. Follow your bliss. Don't follow me. I'm fine with that. I whatever. Everybody got to grow so, up, man. Yeah. Everybody's just got to grow up and be an adult. Like, not a, no one has to like you. And you don't have to like everybody else. And it's just, you don't have to be friends with everybody. You don't have to agree with everybody. You don't have to have the cool opinions. You don't have to do things just because other people want you to do them. Like, your Twitter zone is your Twitter zone. Treat it like your life. Like, just do you. If you want to, all you want to do is just use your Twitter account to, like, retweet, I don't know, like, insert dumbass topic here then great and if somebody wants yeah. to block yeah if somebody wants to block you for it cuz they're like oh you're so annoying fuck them like they don't have to listen to you yeah. like it's not for you to change your behavior it's for them to just like not be within earshot of you which is muting or blocking and it's different i don't know everybody's like, got to grow up on this dumb website i got to say it it's different also than real life too because like in real life people do not the like the aggression which i get in my mentions or my replies or whatever it's so much more than I would ever get in real life from any of these people. Oh, I've for met, sure. I've met Everyone's several a coward on this website. Come I've on. Met, Nobody would I've, say this crap to your face. And I've met several of the sort of A-list Twitter trolls in person, and they are all so bashful in person. So lovely. And They're lo- really nice people. Some of them are nice. Lovely is a stretch for some of them, but like <laughs> I would say enough. lovely is a stretch. But like they are like much softer people nice. yeah well for the, i mean it's a mixed bag some are nice some are not nice and most people you can tell kind of where their twitter personality comes from from there it's but it's like this weird root into your subconscious because to say something on twitter 
you don't have to say it out loud. It's like, it's like it doesn't go through your normal filters to put it on Twitter, which is a weird thing. But anyway, it's not um, even having to say it out loud. It's that you just don't have to risk getting punched in the face. Exactly. Yeah. On the Internet, it's no one can punch you in the face. It's as simple as that. Like, yeah. There's a lot to be said about the accountability of not getting punched in the face. Yeah. And even on a lesser level, you don't see someone's face when they read your tweet like you would if they were having a conversation with them. Yeah. You don't register yeah. how people react to you and you don't get that immediate feedback, which helps us all socialize and be non-sociopaths. So True. Anyway. Yeah, that's weird. I hadn't thought about it that way, though. You're right. It's like this weird sociopath. It's like, yeah, it is. It is sociopathic. You're right. <laughs> Anyhow, on that note, thank you cool for listening story. to the challenges remaining. Uh, this will probably be divided into two episodes. Uh, and so I sure do hope so. Yeah, so this is the second half of – this is the end of the second half. So thank you uh, for listening to this, which will be longer than the first half, I think, based on how I'm imagining I'm going to do it. Uh, if you want to follow along with us, follow us on Twitter. We might block you. We probably won't. <laughs> at ncr underscore tennis. Courtney's at 40 deuce twits. I am at Ben Rothenberg. Send us emails, uh, no challenges remaining, at gmail.com. And yeah, that's about it on that front. Courtney, do you have uh, subscribe and like and stuff? Uh, Courtney, do you have uh, any rant rave thoughts for the fall? It's been a few months since you had any sort of you know time to get this official channel for your feelings. So that's true. I mean, whew, it has been a while. First of all, total rave on the ep you did with Ricky. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, it was great. Um, cop Big. sirens be damned, but oh, yeah. it was, um, it was, it was, it was really good. I was super entertaining and I, I enjoyed it very much. Ricky's um, a treat and Ricky's like, he is. As, and it's as, as an audio form too. Ricky's yes. a treat. Unbelievable. Oh Tremendous. My gosh. Unreal. Shocking. Oh Unreal. My God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, yeah, no, Ricky is a, is our own private meme, uh, <laughs> amongst each other and how we speak to each other. But, uh, yeah, so that was a, that was a really great episode. Um, I guess my rave outside because I tr I want to try and do raves of stuff that like I don't I haven't actually like tweeted about, Ooh. you know, because I figure that like if you follow me and I haven't blocked you, um, then you probably kind of get a sense of like what I'm into at any given moment. So obviously, you know, I'm into Succession and I think Phantom Thread is an amazing movie and I'm really excited to see Parasite and all sort of stuff. Um, but uh, so I got a new iPhone. Yeah. Um, Finally, because I had an iPhone six, which let me tell you, that's some like I have a I six mean, that's S some dial up modem. Six? Not 6S. even a six S? I have a six S. No, six S is fine. My work one's a six S, which is great. It, okay. it I don't have a problem with it. But my personal one was just a six. Mm. And like I would hit a like I would open apps and it would take forever. Anyways, so I I finally upgraded. But in in the course of upgrading, uh I've been like, you know, uh, in the app store a lot to mm -hmm. like try and find stuff that might help my life and things like that. Um, now that I have a phone that can run multiple apps at a time. Um, but the, the app that I found that has really, really been like awesome the last week. And also I can see it absolutely like enriching my life going forward is called Adagio. I D A G I O. Okay. And I D A or A D A. I D A. Okay. I-D-A-G-I-O. Now, if you're like me, when you watch The Matrix, you think, man, I wonder what is the topic that I would love to just be able to, like, stick a needle in the back of my head and download all the information about. 
Do you ever think about this? I think about this a lot. Okay. <laughs> like what what's a thing that I would just I just want downloaded in my brain? I don't want to do the effort to learn it. I just want to know it. And the two things that always stick out in my head are one, uh, chess. I would really oh. love to like be really good at chess. Like to like know all the moves and what they're called. You know, like that sort of stuff. <laughs> you mean like the defenses and things like that? Yeah, like okay. that's the Stony that's the Stony Brook forty seven. Like you know, like, well, okay. Um, so chess is one. And the other is classical music. Like I which I find to be incredibly intimidating. Yes. Um, and I always try to learn about it, but I just feel like I don't even know where to start. And but I, I seem I like it, but I also know that I don't like all of it. Like so, it just it like I need to find my thing, and it just takes a lot of effort. Anyways, so Adagio is a app for classical music and for kind of discovering classical music, and it's really well organized. They have playlists, um, like full albums that you can listen to. You can listen to the free version where it's not on demand, or you can pay like for the actual version version, and um, you can listen to Spotify. anything on demand. Yeah, basically classical music Spotify. Um, you can download full albums, full playlists to listen offline. Um, but it's been really, really great. And I've been spending the last week, like, um, working a lot, but also, um, doing a lot of cleaning, um, because my schedule, I don't do spring cleaning, so I do winter cleaning. Um, and I've just been having the, the phone going and it's been great. But the two things that I, the two artists that I've discovered, um, that I'm obsessed with at the moment are both women. And one thing that you do learn, because they have like great biographies and a lot of the history and stuff like that. And obviously you learn very quickly that women were completely shafted mm -hmm. in the early days of classical music. Um, and whenever they were really good and very talented composers, um, people always assumed that like a man was behind it, like that it wasn't them. So one of those women that falls in that category is Clara Schumann, who was the mm -hmm. wife of Robert Schumann. Yeah. Um, but her stuff, like her solo stuff is fantastic and i really really recommend it and then the other one who because i knew about claire schumann before but um the one that i've only recently discovered who i can't stop listening to is clara haskell um two claras very popular name the Taylor of uh the 1800s <laughs> early 1900s uh but clara haskell h-a-s-k-i-l um, and almost, and a lot of her music was, um, she's a pianist and a lot of her music was just solo, just piano. And it's, I don't know, it's just right up my alley of like what exactly I like. Cause I don't really love orchestral, um, classical music. Like I don't love symphonic, like, like where it gets really loud and gets really soft and it's dramatic. I'm like, ah, chill out. Like not about it. So <laughs> Clara Haskell is my jam. Uh, and so I'm like slowly working my way through her catalog, but I would not have discovered any of these people if not for Adagio. So yeah, it's been, it's been a good app. I've we'll get some it. really classy Clara Haskell to play out the second half of this episode. Maybe if you can. Well, no, but I also wanted, some. I was going to say, don't use Clara Haskell because the one song that was getting me through the entire uh, China swing that I was listening to nonstop, okay. and it just made me happy. And then before we got on to Skype to record this episode, um, I was also listening to it and literally in my seat, just like dancing to it. It just, I don't know. It makes me happy. Is this K-pop song called Travel okay. by this band called Bulbalgan 4. I'll send it to you. Okay. It pleases me. It's a jam. Or you can use Clara Haskell. But, you know, just know that these are two, both my side, my personality. Yeah. I'm here for it. That's good. Definitely. Um, 
mine is we, I'll just sort of run through things I've seen this fall. It's been a while since I did you this. You have been on a movie. I've been on a pretty like, big movie binge. I was definitely for the yeah. first half of November. For sure. I was watching a lot of stuff. Um, but let's see. I've seen in theaters. I've seen the new uh, Pedro Almodovar. I always feel like I'm going to pronounce that wrong. But Pedro's new movie, um, uh, Pain and Glory, with uh, Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz. And it's great. And I will say, warning, there's a lot of heroin in this movie. But if, once you get past that, it's like, it's it's chill. Um, maybe because of the heroin, actually. And then, uh, so that's good. I recommend that. Um, let's see, what else did I see? I saw The Lighthouse. Which you is did? A, I, I did really want to see the lighthouse. You should see the. I mean, you should see the lighthouse. I don't. <laughs> it's weird. Like we, I went with a group of people in that movie. Actually, we walked out being like, I don't know what to think about that. Which is what you're supposed to think. Um, it is some interesting moments where it like is going for something, but then it like completely like, breaks the tension in these weird ways. Uh, yeah. So I, I'll I'll be curious to hear what you think about that. But that's a, a movie that's exhausting, even if it's not that long. But it's, it's a wild ride, the lighthouse. Um, I saw. I saw Waves, which is pretty good. Waves is um, probably going to get a lot of comparisons to Moonlight. They're both sort of coming-of-age stories of uh, black teens in Miami area, although it takes a, a lot more plot to it, which I appreciate. Um, so Waves is pretty good. That's going to be coming out. I think it came out this weekend. I saw an early version of that. Um, what else is there that I've seen? I watched all seven seasons of Letterkenny on Hulu. Letterkenny is this Canadian... Uh, sitcom, I guess it's sort of about like rural Ontario, small town life. And it's like the right, it's, it's weird. It's a very hard show to recommend to anybody. I'm like, I haven't figured out who would actually like it. And I feel kind of weird. Is that the one that's like Canadian veep or no, like not subject matter wise, but in terms of like, they talk very fast and there's a lot of insults. So yeah. Okay. Sounds veepy. Yeah. There is a veep vibe to it for sure. But the location is totally different. And there's like a lot more like repeated inside jokes in the show a lot of like phrases i use over and so over again development. yeah it's a weird hybrid of those but also like but also the like it's the most aggressively canadian thing i've ever seen like in terms of just like culture it's sort of a good for reminding people who maybe are not familiar with canada like people outside north america like yes there is like canadian culture you never have may i don't think you'll ever encounter it in as distilled a form like specifically canadian things including like hockey lingo. There's, a, there's two hockey players who are two of the main characters um, uh, in there. And so I think someone as someone who speaks pretty fluent Canadian from being a hockey player, especially myself and watching a lot of hockey. Um, by the way, farewell to Don Cherry, good riddance, uh, is that, yeah, it's, it's, it sort of satisfyingly scratches that weird maple itch I never knew I had. Um, <laughs> uh, I watched, my favorite movie I watched is not a new movie, is I watched... Uh, the Lobster for the first time. Ah, tremendous. I loved The Lobster. I loved uh, Yorgos. I feel like you're, a, yeah, you're a big Yorgos guy. I've only seen those two things. I've only seen The Favorite and The Lobster, but I'm going to work my way. Oh, you haven't the seen The Killing of, of the Sacred Deer? Not yet. Um, and then also, uh, speaking of other directors I'm really into now, I saw Parasite, which you have not seen yet, Courtney, but I love Parasite. Boone. Boone and went back And went back and watched Boone's uh, movie previous to that, Oakjaw on Netflix, which I loved. And one of the things I love about Boone is that mostly with Oakshaw and Snowpiercer is that he makes these movies that feel global. And this way I've never seen anybody else mm. do because he has these like international casts, these like multilingual movies and it just makes things feel like much bigger stakes than ever before in a way that I haven't seen anybody else pull off without ever really feeling like effortful and or like unnatural. Like, yes, like the world is connected and, 
and I think Boone does that in a much better way than I've ever seen anybody else do. Snowpiercer, sorry, not Snowpiercer, Parasite is yeah. all oh. more or less in Korea. There's references to America repeatedly in Snow in Parasite, but it does all take place in in Seoul, and it, but it's it's so good. I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, yeah, go see it in theaters if you can. I would happily go see it again. Uh, other things I've seen. Uh, that's, that's that's enough. That's, that's a good amount of stuff. That's good know. stuff. No, you've 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 done you've done good work. I I understand that you've went into a Scorsese dive as well. I saw one. I only one. Oh, I, only I, one. I, I, oh. I, our our buddy was giving me lots of recommendations, but I only actually I think wound up watching Taxi Driver, which I liked. Nah, fair enough. Um, yeah, I had not seen Taxi Driver before. I felt like something. I, and Did I you saw, see Joker? Yes. So I saw Taxi Driver after I saw Joker. I heard so many comparisons between the two. Um, so yeah, Joker. Uh, Joker is. I think it's fine. Like I don't. I don't think it's like it's. It is one of those movies that I feel like will really like be validating to a lot of people. It shouldn't be validating to. Right. And we'll, yeah. that's like I understand the sense of like, but at the same time, like that's a weird thing to say. Like, then you shouldn't make that art because it will inspire people. Like I don't. Yeah, that's true. That's I don't buy that either. But yeah, I don't know. It was. It was. Uh, it, there were parts of it that were uncomfortable for that, and it did feel like a lot of just sort of like discomfort porn at times. Like, let's see how emaciated he can get and how gross and bony Joaquin Phoenix is. That sort of stunt kind of way of people. Which is weird because he's already get... done that in The Master. Like in The Master, like he he's like he like is so physically like skeletal. Mm. Um, but I will say this, like, and I keep saying this to everybody, and I haven't seen Joker, so it's probably like a very unfair thing for me to say because I haven't seen it. Okay. But for people who have seen Joker or like Joker or like what they've seen from Joaquin in Joker or like that whole thing that I assume is happening in Joker, you should really see You Were Never Really Here, um, which was a film from last year, which stars yeah. Joaquin, um, directed by Lynn Ramsey. Um, who's one of my favorite directors, a uh, great Scottish female director, um, music by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, who also works a lot with Paul Thomas Anderson. But mm. um, it's a very similar, not similar, but it's basically a story of like a guy who's like a hitman, um, a very violent hitman and kind of weird. And you don't really understand like what his whole situation is. Um, and it kind of goes into all of that and his pathos and why yeah. he is, which is adjacent to kind yeah. of what you're figuring yeah, out in taxi Joker driver as well. Joker kind of thing yeah yeah sure. exactly but yeah but i think that you were never really here is like one of those films that like and i think it was for a while like streaming on i think it's on, it's, it's on something i definitely it's, it's on, on something my, it's on one of my cues at the moment yeah but it's it was one of my favorite movies i watched last year like it was unbelievable when i saw it um yeah and it's not like as weird as like first reformed which is like a very indie weird movie but like yeah, I just I never understood why people didn't watch you or never really here and never really talked about it. And then now Joker's making a shit ton of money just because it's a comic book adjacent film. Right. But like I feel like you were never really here is like the better version of it. Yeah. No, the comic no books if, if you're like a big like Marvel nerd, like is that Marvel Batman? I don't know what could have maybe DC. DC. But yeah, but if you're uh, a big comic book nerd, like there are certain moments of Joker that'll be very satisfying to you, but also might like annoy people who are like really into the mythology of Batman. I don't know. But yeah, but also, I, if you want to also... see this dark version of Joker, then read The Killing Joke, which is a seminal comic that is about the Joker origin story that like basically inspired like this whole weird dark version of Batman and Joker, but like it's really really I don't know. I just I mean, I'm sure the movie's fine. I don't think the movie's terrible, but man, t 
talk about a terrible PR situation for that film for a while. I don't. Well, it was weird because like there were signs at the theater that's like we will not allow anyone into the theater wearing a mask or like carrying a bag, and it's like they're like prepared for it to be some violent incident at the theater. Well, they kind of had to though. Yeah, given after what happened in Colorado. Aura, but, yeah, no, I get that, yeah. but like it's just a. Yeah, so that, it's, it's all just sort of odd. Also in Joaquin, this fall, I watched Her for the first time, which I liked. Mm. Her was up. Joaquin's great and everything. He's really good. Yeah. There's never, there's just, big. he's never put in a bad person. I mean, starting from like Gladiator on. Exactly. Gladiator, he was so good in Gladiator. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, The Master, if you want to see like kind of peak Joaquin weirdness, like watch The Master. Unbelievable. And that's about it, I think, for me. That's enough enough show for us here. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening both halves of this will be <laughs> ncr 263b uh so, sorry 236b and here is some k-pop to soothe your mind Woot. and delight your soul bye guys he's so good <laughs>